Today, we're going to do a product spotlight for amazing encounters and places. We're going to take a look at the Kickstarter Apocalypse Keys by Evil Hat. We're going to talk about limiting content in D&D Beyond and how to use third-party content in D&D Beyond. This is going to be a, a bit of a longer conversation. And then we're going to cover more questions from the September 2022 Patreon Q&A, all today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help me put on shows like this and you want access to all kinds of exclusive material to help you run your D&D game, you can become a patron of Sly Flourish. You can find a link to become a patron down in the show notes below. And to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your continued support. My friend Christian Zuck ran a Kickstarter last year for a book called Amazing Encounters and Places. And this book is now fully available for purchase on Drive-Thru RPG. You can find a link to pick up this book down in the show notes below. It is a $25 book. It is 300 pages of encounters, and it covers a huge swath of material that you can drop into your game. I know Christian mostly from the cartography that he's done. He does battle maps, really, really excellent, beautiful battle maps, and you will certainly find beautiful and excellent battle maps all throughout this product. The battle maps themselves, virtual versions of these battle maps are actually available in a separate pack. You can pick up a bundle that includes all of the virtual tabletop ready versions of the maps and the PDF for about $55. It says zero here on mine because it already knows that I picked it up. For full disclosure, I backed the Kickstarter for the digital PDF and Christian did give me a set of the maps as a review copy. So I have both and half of those he gave to me and half of them I paid for myself. So if you just want to have the encounter book, you can pick that up for about $25. You can pick up the maps for, I think, about another $25 or $30, or you can pick up the whole package together. If I was running online, I would almost certainly pay the $55 to get all of it. It seems like a high price tag, but you get dozens and dozens and dozens of maps that you can use for all different kinds of battles, even ones outside of the encounters that are going on here. He does variants on all of the maps. It's it's like 50 or 60 maps. It's a ton of material. So you get a lot of stuff for that 50 bucks that I think you can use for a lot of material. Really, really, really good stuff. So the encounters all cover different regions of the world, all different kinds of things that are going on in different different sort of environments that you would find. The Bountiful Strand, the Sunken Shore, the Crown Jade Wood, the Singing Grove, the Alabaster Fangs, the Sky, the Sky Isles, Sarsbin's Lowlands, and the Restless Bog. So these are all overland locations. There's not a lot of dungeons and things like that into this place. The art is just gorgeous. You can take a look at all the art that you're seeing in the preview here, but it's really, really beautiful product, really well put together. Just, just an excellent, excellent book. I've, I gave it a good solid read over this past weekend, really liked what I saw and really, really dug it. We're going we're gonna to take a look at some examples of locations. So they have like a recommended tier Definitely good art. You can see some of the maps are overland maps, and then there's definitely maps that are focused on, on tactical combat, sort of local, local places. Describes regions of interest, encounter overviews, development, how it works, read aloud text for the, for the environment, and then he has scaling combat. Now, I talked to Christian about this when he was putting this together, and I told him that I was going to talk about this on this show, so this comes as no surprise. The scaling combat part is kind of interesting. There are some DMs who I think are really going to love it, and that the idea is like, hey, whatever tier you are, whatever level characters you have, you can use these encounters in whatever you want. My argument would be that there are certain times where it wouldn't make sense to use a particular encounter for a particular tier, because 
because the kinds of things that a that a higher level group are going to do are going to be just different in scale and scope than what a lower level group would do. So I think it definitely adds utility to this. But I think when you get into some circumstances where you're like, oh, well, normally it would be like three bandits, but instead it's 12 gladiators. And you're like, why are 12 gladiators in this particular reason and the reason why is gladiators are high cr monsters so they, they you have you have sort of high cr groups which is fine but i don't really subscribe to the idea that the world is always as difficult as whatever level the characters are i think that the world is the way the world is the characters however high level the characters are is however high level the characters they are it does add a level of utility to this product that you won't find in one where it's very specific to a particular level i think that there are ways to do like a level range and say like okay this is really a tier one location and here's how you can scale it for tier one this is really a tier four location and here's how you would scale it for tier four last week i did the plane breaker the preview of plane breaker and that's how they treated the planes the planes had like a a general expected level range that they might be used at and in certain circumstances might mean that you would be there at either a low level or a high level but you know here's that example here's the example i bring up if you're tier one like you're only level one to two it's a couple of tribal warriors two axe beaks two scouts and two reef sharks which is actually that's a pretty big battle for it but if you're tier four level 19 or 20 there's five gladiators two tyrannosaurus rexes three assassins and two giant sharks so you know why why are the gladiators and the tyrannosaurus rexes and assassins all hanging out together and it's and it's one of those where like the 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 situation isn't changing, but the monsters that are there are changing. This is definitely more of a personal preference thing than like an error. It's not like I look at this and say, oh, this is a problem and it's broken for everybody. Some people are definitely going to be happy to have like, oh, if I want to run this for my higher level group, here's a way that I can run it for my higher level group. I it, it hits a different philosophy than I typically subscribe to, which is the situation determines what monsters should be there. You don't just pick monsters because they happen to fit and whatever the level range is of the players. But again a lot of a lot of extra utility same way with the same way with difficulty checks i've had this conversation with my friend teo sabadia ad nauseum for i think like 10 years i think 10 years you know since the coming of fifth edition i think he and i have been talking about this which is you know the c elf hears whatever the group has to say but a, a successful dc 15 17 19 21 wisdom insight check reveals he's well why did he get better at hiding this information because the characters got higher level. He went from a 15 to a 21. He gained a plus five to his insight check because the characters got higher level. That's where it's like, well, wouldn't the NPC have the same chance to, to reveal information that they're trying to hide? When a 20th level character looks at a rope, is it a piece of dental floss that's covered in oil, right? But when a first level character goes there, it's a nice knotted rope with maybe a ladder on the side. Well, did the rope know that the character, what happens if a level one and a level 20 character both rush up to a rope at the same time? What happens to the rope? Does the rope, in such fear of the 20th level character, begin to secrete an ooze that makes it harder to grab on with your slippery hands because it's so frightened of the level 20 character? I don't think so, but yeah, who, who might argue? Hey, at least the treasure goes up too. So you definitely have treasure. All that aside, really, really good ideas about what the background is. How does the encounter work? How can you change things? Really, really solid stuff. There is a lot of material in here. The other, the one other little argument I would make about the scaling combat and, and a Christian is here in, it looks like Christian is here inside our chat today. So you can bring this up. I'm guessing you didn't play test every one of these encounters for every one of these places because it's very, very hard to play test 
one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different encounters for each location would be a tremendous amount of playtesting. So it's very hard to kind of playtest when you're doing a lot of scaling, doing a lot of modification and a lot of manipulation of the situation. Very hard to playtest that to see how does that, how did that battle against the five gladiators, two Tyrannosaurus Rexes, three assassins and two giant sharks go. But I think there is enough information here and a, a good DM is able to kind of manipulate the situation, know what their characters are bringing to the table. It's really hard to play test high level stuff anyway, because the variance of challenge is so different among different groups, the higher level they get that even if you were to play test it, you're not going to be able to play test it more than once or twice. And that's still not a good representative sample of what is going to happen for everybody. I know this from having play tested fantastic layers, which was tremendously difficult to do. So I heard from Christian that he did in fact play test all of the encounters in this pack, but he, of course you can't play test all the encounters for every tier of play. So that is certainly, certainly a difficult thing to do. Every one of them has like a good combat map that kind of shows you what, you know, where the encounter is going to take place. They hit the right size of the amount of information that they give you. It's more than just like a quick paragraph of an encounter, but it's not as big as like a full adventure. It really is enough information that you can just drop in to have kind of a side encounter or maybe something that leads the characters into, into different areas. Very well put together. Really, really good design. Lots of different monsters in here. In fact, there's a lot of custom monsters that, that exist in here. This is kind of cool. Here's a whole list of different items that the characters might pick up and, and, in different spots. Just boy, bright and vibrant. The art is really beautiful. I know Christian is working on a physical version of this book. So, and I, I backed the physical version. So I'm going to, I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that physical version. And it just, it looks really, really good. So if you are looking for a huge pile of encounters to bring into your game, whether they're doing wilderness exploration or whether they're going on swamps or, or sea coasts or anything like that, and you want to have sort of drop in encounters that you could put in anywhere, check out the amazing encounters and places. I would pick up the PDF and map pack bundle, particularly if, you, if you're going to be playing online, I would definitely pick up the PDF and map pack bundle together rather than just picking up the PDF because you're definitely going to want all those maps. And it's possible that you're like, I just, I don't really want all the encounters. I just want the maps. You can pick up all the maps separately in their own pack. If you just want to have a huge pile of really well built, beautiful, full color battle maps, different variants of different kinds of maps that you want to drop into your game, you could just pick up the map pack as well. I'll link to all three of them into the show notes below. So that is Amazing Encounters and Places by Christian Zuck, CZRPG. Evil Hat Games is a really wonderful publisher. They publish the Fate RPG, Fate Core, Fate Accelerated, Fate Condensed. They've done Thirsty Sword Lesbians, which won a whole bunch of awards at the last Ennies. They published the Dresden Files RPG, Monsters of the Week, and a really, really good is avant-garde probably you know too snobby a term i'm not so sure they really like to push the boundaries of rpgs fred hicks who runs evil hat games is always kind of looking at how do we push the rpg industry in different areas and they have a new kickstarter that's going on right now for an rpg called apocalypse keys i'll, I'll read the quick quick summary the doomsday clock is ticking down and their emotions run high as you and your team of division agents struggle to find the keys before the villainous harbingers unlock the doors of power and bring about the apocalypse it is definitely a sort of high action think about it like your marvel cinematic universe style of rpg it's all based on the powered by the apocalypse system so if you're familiar with like apocalypse world or dungeon world i think monsters of the week also uses it i think that thirsty sword lesbians i think is also based on that blades in the dark 
Although Blades in the Dark is sort of its own its own system, but it's similar. Blades in the Dark definitely has a touch of Powered by the Apocalypse. Powered by the Apocalypse is a very popular system for role-playing games that are built around playbooks and actions. You have a playbook for each of the different kinds of characters. Imagine you have the character classes. Each has their own playbook, and each of them have their own moves. And it is a 2d6-based system, and you roll 2d6, you have success, success with complications and fails. And it is a very easy RPG system to pick up and play and, and run with. I really like Power by the, the Power by the Apocalypse systems. And I know that I'm going to dig what Evil Hat does when they run with it. So here are the examples of the playbooks. They have The Last, The Shade, The Summoned, The Found, The Fallen, The Hungry, and The Surge. They're all kind of based on emotional arcs and themes rather than like a specific character class, which is a really sort of interesting idea. It is a relatively wild idea and wild environment and one of the things i was happy to see is that they give you as soon as you back the kickstarter you can in the first post that's available to those who backed it you can get a preview of the book i'm gonna i'm gonna do a quick look through the preview right now it doesn't have any of the art in it or has very little of the art in it but it is a full version of the book a full version of all the rules 375 pages one thing i know is like evil hat always makes beautiful physical versions of the book so i went ahead and backed the physical version i i backed the pdf and then i was reading through it and i'm like i think i really dig this i want to have a physical version of it so i bought the physical version of the book as well so it's a uh, it's gonna be like a trade paperback size book and but a but a big hefty tome 375 pages and it's got all the ideas about how to make a move and what are the things that are going against you what are the basic moves everybody has what are the moves that are specific to your group or your what they call division moves division is sort of the organization that's sending that's sending you out there to take care of it to take care of this apocalyptic problem what are the things that you're going to do to break it but then when you think about like well what kind of adventures am i going to be able to run they have a whole bunch of sort of pre-assembled what they call pre-assembled apocalypse right these are all of the different kinds of mysteries these are scenarios that you can run that are right there in the book and this i think is really helpful something where like i you know it's hard for me to get my head around every new weird story that an rpg can come up with so it really helps when they can be like here's how one of these things will operate here's how these things work and it tells you like what's the introduction to it what's the complexity levels i like that it sort of has a content warning for each one of these what are some of the, the things that you might hit on so when you're talking to your players you can make sure that you're hitting the kind of things that they want to have in their game and not hitting things that you don't you know the parasitic library is a semi-sentient interdimensional entity that feeds on the accumulated knowledge that feeds on accumulated knowledge and secrets the library adapts from its form to camouflage itself entering the library is dangerous so cool stuff how do you begin the mystery what are the questions that you establish who are the contacts and npcs some of the people of interest that you're going to run into so it gives you essentially a bunch of adventures that you can run that are in this system which i think is really useful for an environment where the whole storyline is different you really want to give people some something to work with like you want to give gms something that they can work with so they know what kind of adventures make sense for this world that you've built and they definitely have that here in this in this in this thing so what i really dig about it is you can back the pdf and you can immediately get a copy of the book it doesn't have the art in it but it shows you like what's in here so you really get a good idea of what you're going to be picking up in fact you could probably start playing it right away if you really wanted to so i'm really looking forward to the full book oh and it uses the apocalypse world doomsday clock style thing this is something i have taken and turned into these the goals that a villain will pull off in DD games i've written about this in return of the lazy dungeon master the idea of doomsday clocks is a really powerful idea blades in the dark has their whole idea about using different kinds of clocks what are the what are the sort of clocks that go on but i think the original idea of the doomsday clocks came from originally from apocalypse world what are the 
stages of the plot that are moving forward that when they hit the whole thing kind of lead to the the end of the the end of everything that you know so i'm really glad to see that they have these sort of adventures in here cool style fun game I know that it's going to be a good wild ride. And really, I'm, I'm looking very much forward to the book and I hope to have a chance to play it. I will say like it is when you when you're running like Apocalypse World, it's very different from running like a D&D game. And I remember when Dungeon World came out and I was reading it, I was like, this is looks really cool and really interesting, but I'm scared to run it. And I asked my friend Dave Chalker, who also knows Fred Hicks, and I was like, Dave, will you come and run it for my for me and my friends? And he's like, sure. And so he came over and ran it. And I was like, oh, this is really different. And I'll tell you, a lot of the ideas of Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, a lot of the ideas that I bring forward and how to run our D&D games comes from this idea, the ideas that have sort of started first, culminated with the original Apocalypse World ideas and now have kind of spread up into everything from Dungeon World and Blades in the Dark and all of these other independent RPGs and, and books like Apocalypse World. There's so much that D&D DMs can learn from these style of RPGs that we can bring into our games. So check out Apocalypse Keys. It's available on Kickstarter right now. So far, they have 1,300 backers. Go back it today. You can find a link to Apocalypse Keys down in the show notes below. So I've been getting my head around a big topic, and this really came to me when running my Empire of the Ghouls game, in which we used material from Tome of Heroes and the Midgard Heroes Handbook for my Empire of the Ghouls game, and what, what that was like when we actually used that at the table. And it opened my eyes to something where I have been kind of hand-waving it up to now, and now I'm not hand-waving it anymore. And I'm thinking a lot more about it. And I've been of the philosophy. I think that I've, I've talked about this on the show before, that my my philosophy towards this hobby is that we own the hobby, that as when we buy books from Wizards of the Coast, we buy books from third party publishers, but we decide what hits our table. We decide how it hits our table. We decide what we're going to run and that the strength of an RPG for any one of us is however strong it is for us and our group. That I don't worry too much about like the industry or the hobby as a whole. I'm more interested in like for each of us looking at our groups, how well does it work for our groups? And I talk about this with all of many, many of my friends and many of my friends that are in this industry where they are publishers. I'm a publisher in this industry. I talk with other publishers in this industry. And, you know, some of them are like, you know, the hobby really is important because if you want to bring more people in or if you want the hobby to expand, you, you definitely want them to do well, which is absolutely true. Like I, I absolutely want the best for D&D. I absolutely want it to be as popular as it can be so that more people are, are playing it. it. It delights me to know that it is five times greater. It delights me to know that people on the street when they see my D&D shirt stop and we talk about D&D and they talk about how their kids play D&D. Almost everybody that I talk to has some kind of connection with, oh yeah, my, my neighbors play that, my friend plays that, or I played it once and I enjoyed it and I'd really love to play it again. I, get, I have these conversations all the time and that's really important. But also it's like that, I can't control that and you can't control that. We can control what we happens at our games. We can control what happens when we're gonna run a game for our friends. And as long as we can get our friends together to play a game, it's fine. And an example is Numenera. Numenera is not nearly as popular as D&D. Not by a long shot. Probably not one one hundredth as popular as D&D. Probably, I don't even know, one one thousandth, one ten thousandth? I don't even know how popular Numenera is compared to D&D. Much, much smaller. 
But holy cow, their products are beautiful. I love the game. My, my group is loving the game. So what do I care how popular it is, right? What I care is I'm able to bring it to my players. My players are able to sit there. We're able to enjoy it and everything is going great. And the same is true with D&D, that I don't, I can't decide what Wizards of the Coast is going to do with one D&D, with the next version, of, with the next iteration of the core books. I offered my recommendations to them. They read them. I'm excited about that. Is that going to change their direction? I, I doubt it. I, I filled in my survey on the current background one D&D next play test, but so did thousands and thousands of other people. So I have very little influence over what they're going to do with D&D, but I do have influence over what I'm going to run at my table. And if they make mistakes, then there are things that I don't like. I should be able to fix those on my side. If I don't like it at all, I could still play fifth edition because I've got fifth edition. So my thought is like, however bad the industry goes, isn't so bad that I can't just play with the current books that I have now, which I've already been enjoying for the past eight years and could probably enjoy for the rest of my life. But then there's D&D Beyond. And what I discovered for my own group. So now I can speak to personal experience. So like, how did it affect my own, my own group? How did it affect what happened with me? I can't describe how it affects everybody else, but I can describe how it affects me. And I can do a little bit of analysis to see like, is this a problem other people are having? And I said, you know, I really want to try some other material. I really want to say like, I bought Toma Heroes. I backed the Kickstarter. I have the Midgard Heroes handbook. I love the Cobalt Press stuff. I love Midgard. I want to use this stuff. I want to build a different theme of D&D. I want to build a Midgard-focused, Cobalt-Press-focused version of D&D that we're going to play for this one campaign to see what that's like. Bring in new subclasses, bring in new races, bring in new powers, bring in new spells, bring in new magic items, bring in new monsters, bring in a whole new campaign world and see what that's going to be like. And I talked about it with my players and I, I said to them, like, you're probably, it's probably going to be easier for you to manage this by using a paper character sheet than it will be to use D&D Beyond. But I'm not going to stop you from doing it. And, they, and so I think more than half of them ended up saying like, well, I'm at least going to use D&D Beyond to help me manipulate some of the math so I can figure that out. And they did. In a lot of cases, they would have like a paper character sheet, but they'd also have a D&D Beyond character sheet. And they would like, I'll just put placeholders. I'll put in, I, there is no bear folk, but I'll just put in a bugbear and I'll know that I'll know that the difference is there. What happened is in the last game, when we ran it, we were going around, they had just reached third level and we were going around talking about what new abilities characters got. One of the players said, I, I just picked the I just picked the wild magic uh, feat for barbarian. I'm very excited. Or the wild magic surge, the the wild I forget what wild surge thing. It's basically like the wild magic barbarian thing. And I was like, that's not one of the subclasses that's in the source material we allowed. And they're just like, you know, and like I thought, like they went through and looked, and they were excited about that one, and they grabbed it, and they included it, and they were excited about it. And then I had to be the one to take their toy away. I had to be the one. I was the bad guy, and I had to say like that's not one of the ones that's from Toma Heroes or Midgard Heroes. And they're like, well, I looked through those, but I like this one. I thought this would be more fun. I'm like, yeah, but that's from Tasha's and we didn't include Tasha's. And if we include that for you for Tasha's, now we're including Tasha's for everything else. You know, same, same problem. And then later in that same game, one of the players was playing and they were using Zephyr Strike. And I hadn't thought about it at first. I think they had used Zephyr Strike before. And then I was like, Zephyr Strike is from Xanathar's guide. Ze Zephyr Strike isn't from the Player's Handbook. And remember, we were just doing Player's Handbook, Toma Heroes, and Midgard Heroes. Those are the three source books for character creation. And that's because I wanted them to try some of the other feats. And I wanted to try some of these other spells and try these other abilities, try these other subclasses. And they kind of defaulted back to what was available on D&D Beyond. And the reason why is that D&D Beyond does not make it easy at all to limit source material and in many cases, doesn't even tell you where the source material came from. So if you go and you look at the classes, like I'll show you an example. If I go to D&D Beyond and I go to game rules and I go to classes and I go to barbarian as the player who did this and you go down and you say, oh, I want to pick a subclass. 
it lists every subclass from every source with no indication that a subclass is either core or from Tasha's or Xanathar's or anywhere else. Every subclass is in here. Path of the Zealot is in here. And here is the Path of Wild Magic. No listing in here that Path of Wild Magic comes from one source over the other, much less having an ability to filter it out so that when you're building your character, you can say, I only am using the stuff from the player's handbook. I'm not using the source from everywhere else. Instead, the way D&D Beyond is designed, even though at the beginning of these books, it says, like, in, I know it says this in Tasha's Guide, but in Xanathar's it has a little stuff. They're like, hey, the DM is the adjudicator of the rules. These are optional rules that you can include. They are not a replacement to the player's handbook. They're not core rules. They are optional rules. If the DM wants to bring them into the game, they can. Except D&D Beyond assumes you're going to, because D&D Beyond gives you all of them. And even though, if you go to character creation, we'll go to character creation here. We'll create a new character build a standard character you have this homebrew content critical role content magic the gathering eberron rick and morty non-core DD content whatever you select for non-core it includes tasha's and xanathar's automatically it doesn't matter what you select for this if you are a dm and you select the sources that the players can see all that does is limit what source books they can see it does not limit the options that you have available or that the player has available in DD beyond which means that when you pick a feat for example every feat is listed if you go select a feat every feat from any book that they picked up is sitting there in that list there is no way to filter it down there's no way to even see that a fit that a feat came from a particular source which means it's extremely hard to limit source material in dnd beyond so then the answer is well, well one question is why limit it why say you're limited to any given source why mike who cares just let them pick whatever they want to pick why are you being such a jerk about all this and my argument is not that you then you have to have then you get people picking things that are unbalanced and that certainly you get this idea that there's a combination of effects. If I pick this thing from over here and I pick this thing from over here, then I'm going to have nothing but twilight clerics who are casting silvery barbs all the time. It's not about that. It's about having a theme to a campaign that you may want to say, I want to run a draconic campaign. I want to run a campaign that's built around draconic ideas. And what that means is I'm going to focus on the player's handbook and maybe we'll include we'll include Xanathar's guide and then we're going to include Fizzbands. We're not going to include Van Richten's guide. We're not going to include the other Magic the Gathering books. We're not going to include anything else. We're just going to focus on those books, those three books, Player's Handbook, Xanathar's Guide, and Fizzbands. There's no selector box that says when you're building a character, either as a GM or as a player, I only want to see sources from these three. I only want to see races. I only want to see classes, subclasses. I only want to see feats from these, these abilities. There is nothing like that in there. And that means it's really hard to limit it. And the reason you want to limit it is to have that theme, is to say, like, let's break away from going with whatever is mechanically best. If you don't include Xanathar's Guide, thank God, now you're going to have clerics who aren't using Toll the Dead all the time, right? Why is Toll the Dead used all the time? Because it's a D12. Does it thematically fit every every cleric? <laughs> Not really. Do, does every cleric end up using Toll the Dead if it's available? A lot of the time. Why? Because it's a D12 when you hit somebody who's damaged. And D12s are better than D8s. So of course I'm going to use Toll the Dead. Well, one way to sort of break out of that idea of picking just whatever the optimal class stuff is across all of the books that have been available for the last eight years is to instead say, we're going to use the core book and we're going to use these other books like I did in my 
Empire of the Ghouls campaign. I don't know that there isn't stuff, and I think there probably is, stuff that is equally weird and broken and doesn't work quite right in Tome of Heroes and in Midgard Heroes Handbook, but at least we'll be exploring new stuff. At least we'll say, like, these characters that we're playing are going to feel significantly different than all of the other characters we've played in the eight years we've been playing D&D because the source material picking is focused on this other area. So the, the biggest issue that's going on is how much D&D has become D&D Beyond. Maybe not for everybody, but it has for my group and it has for my groups, I should say, multiple groups. I run three different groups. We've run fifth edition for all three of the groups. By far, I think it's only one or two players don't use D&D Beyond. Everybody else does use D&D Beyond. For them, a lot of cases, D&D Beyond is D&D. And when that happens, when D&D Beyond becomes D&D, we have taken this hobby that was very, very wide, that had lots of people from outside, lots of third-party producers, lots of different groups putting it in, and it's become this very monolithic thing where everything that Wizards of the Coast publishes is golden and allowed and visible and usable by all players, regardless of what their DM says, and nothing else is. This isn't like a, oh, this is going to be a problem in the future. It's a problem right now for me right? It's a problem right now in my Wednesday group. I don't have to worry about what the future is going to say. I can see it happening today. And it's hard for me because I don't know what the right answer is. I love D&D Beyond. I use it all the time. I use it on this show. I get every book that's available in it. And I make my own characters in it. I pick monsters from it. I use the encounter builder in it. I use all the stuff. And the reason why that it's as, it's as ubiquitous as it is and that we are, it's moving into this area where it is becoming D&D for a lot of people. I'm not going to say it's D&D for everybody. We'll get into the, some, some data. We're going to get some data here. For a lot of people, D&D Beyond is D&D. And the reason why is because it's really good. Because it works really well. Because they built it really well. It took them years to get to the point where it's really, really good. And I remember when Wizards of the Coast bought D&D, I was elated. This is universally a good thing because those people who were invested in D&D Beyond didn't have to worry about the license getting pulled because they were a third-party company with a very exclusive license that was granted by Wizards of the Coast. When Wizards of the Coast bought D&D Beyond, that meant it's now official. That all the everything that you've invested, both your time, your energy, your money, everything that you put into D&D Beyond, now you know it's not going to go away because it was bought by the company who did it so that was really great the problem was and i i had this little thing in the back of my head that's like yeah but what about third party stuff and now that has become in my mind a, a bigger problem and it, it means that to me the hobby and the industry is weaker the more we rely on dnd beyond and to give an example of that reliance i spent 70 bucks buying the collector's edition of Spelljammer at my game shop and material in that book was out of date one week later a dozen different parts of that of those books got errated within one week D&D Beyond was updated immediately so my D&D Beyond version was up to date immediately it was up to date even sooner than the errata came out but now my books are out of date so then the question is like well if anybody looked at that and is like wow they errated these $70 books I could go buy them for like whatever it was, 30, 40 bucks on, on, on D&D Beyond. And those will be updated right away. Why wouldn't I only buy them on D&D Beyond? Why would I buy the physical books if they're out of date right away? That's a problem. That, that to me speaks to a, a, a problem with this industry because now I am dependent upon Wizards of the Coast for my joy of D&D. A, a thing that I don't want to be. I don't want to be relying on anybody. I want to be relying on me and my, 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 my players. But instead, it's like, well, what they decide to do with that is a, directly affecting my game. And that's a problem. Well, how ubiquitous a problem is this? Is this really a big deal? Or is this just Mike Shea's problem? 
So I, I, I went out and was like, well, okay, I, I can't say for sure, but I talked to some friends of mine and I also ran a poll on YouTube recently. And it was the, 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 in, the, the results are pretty interesting. Now, of course, selection bias, don't, don't email me or put comments about selection bias and the flaws of surveys. I am well aware of the flaws of surveys, but it is better than your opinion, better than my opinion is let's actually try to get some information to see how ubiquitous. And I, there are some things I can say that I think are absolutely true. So of those who answered the survey, there were about, you know, sh just shy of 3,000, it'll probably be 3,000 people by the end of today. 3,000 people filled out this poll. And I asked them, how often do you or your players use D&D Beyond to manage characters in your D&D game? And the answer was 35% said almost always, 11% often, 9% sometimes, 10% rarely, and 35% said never or almost never. That is a, almost a perfect U-shaped curve, the exact opposite of a bell curve. And what it means is that there's a lot of people who almost always use D&D Beyond, and there's a lot of people who never use it. And then there's a few people that kind of use it about 30% that use it either often sometimes or rarely but basically you could say about half of people are using DD beyond half of the people that bother to answer my poll are using DD beyond i think that's safe to say i would bet that model i'm gonna i'm gonna make a bad assumption but i don't we're not we're not curing cancer here we're not we're not managing the economy of entire countries so i think it's safe for us to make assumptions i'm gonna i'm gonna assume that that's pretty universal that if you were to look at any particular group about half of people are using dnd beyond and half of them aren't now what i think is might be interesting is that of the people who aren't i bet a significant amount of the people who aren't are using roll 20 and roll 20 is a whole other virtual tabletop that also has a character builder the difference with roll 20 is it does include third-party options a lot of times it does at least let you to, uh, allow you to have third-party options in the same platform so there is that option i don't know how good it is for limiting source material i don't know if you can say like i want to include stuff from xanathars or not somebody who's more well versed in roll 20 will have to tell me that i i would expect i would bet roll 20 is better at it than dnd beyond is but also having used roll 20 i know that using the character mancer in roll 20 far harder for me to use than dnd beyond's character builder so i've definitely seen that and i also know there's a big overlap between people who use roll 20 and dnd beyond because you have this plugin beyond 20 that lets you take your roll 20 character your dnd beyond characters and move them into roll 20 so there's definitely that part of it too that there's an overlap between people using roll 20 and uh, and dnd beyond so what do we what do we do with this so there's really to me two two problems one is that D&D Beyond does not have good tools for either DMs or players to limit the source material that they are using for building characters. That I'm hoping D&D Beyond can fix. I'm, I'm hoping they will fix it. I think it's been on their list. I think it's been in there. I've heard of them bringing it up. But that for me, the more material that gets added to D&D Beyond, the more source books that get added, the more stuff that gets added, the more I want to be able to turn on and off the sources for both the characters that I'm building and the characters that I want my players to build as a DM. I think that that would be really, really great. And I would hope they do so. If you don't have, if they don't do that, and we can't assume that they, they would, if they don't do that, one thing that we can do is we have to be really, really clear when we're going to limit sources. And maybe you decide you don't want to limit sources. If this isn't a problem for you, it's not a problem. If this, if I've been ranting for, I don't know how long now, a long time. If I've been ranting all this time and you're like, it's not a, Mike, you're an idiot and, and, and it's not a problem. Beautiful. Th thank you. You don't, if you don't have the problem, you don't have the problem and you don't have to worry about what I'm saying. Cause this is an individual problem. This is a problem for individual groups. It's a problem for some groups. It's not a problem for others. I'm not saying it's a universal problem for everybody. I do think a reliance on D and D beyond could bite everybody in the ass one way or another, some way. But generally, if you're like, I'm just happy playing D&D with my friends, they love D&D Beyond and we're good. And I just let them use whatever source material they want. No problem. 
go with the gods. You're, I am not disparaging you. I'm not saying you're playing wrong. You're playing right. And you're having an easier time doing it than I am. So who's wrong here, <laughs> right? So I am not disparaging that, that point of view. I know that I have found, and playing different versions of D&D, all the way back to like third edition, that my ability to limit source material meant that I could steer the campaign to feel differently. So we could have new stuff that we'd never seen before. So we could try new stuff that we hadn't seen before. And I found that to be really useful by saying, this stuff is not allowed. This stuff is allowed and the games were interesting i definitely got gripes from my players who liked stuff from other source books that they then couldn't use just like i am now it's a little different now because they don't even know that they're picking stuff from particular areas and that's a problem so one of the things we can do is we during our session zero when we're talking about what options are available for character creation we can be very very clear about what options are available what options aren't and what that means if you're using dnd beyond and the example would be we have to say very clearly Often D&D Beyond doesn't tell you what sources any particular feature comes from. So when you're picking new features for your character, basically every level, every time you're picking a new feature, go to only the source books that we are allowing and read through the features there first before you go to the character builder or before you go to any of the character or class information that's anywhere else in D&D Beyond because that will show you everything and we're not allowing everything. So when you're selecting spells, subclasses, feats, races, all of the different features of your character, look at the book in D&D Beyond. Go to, go to the player's handbook in D&D Beyond if you're allowing like player's handbook and xanathar's for example read through the player's handbook features read through xanathar's pick from there and then go to your character builder and select the stuff you chose when you're reading the books that is the only good way to limit the source material in the books in dnb on right now we can explain that to our players we can talk them through that and tell them if you go to the character sheet if you go to the character information descriptions on D&D Beyond. If you go anywhere outside of the source books, they're going to include all kinds of stuff. And we're not allowing all kinds of stuff, which means it's very easy for you to pick spells that aren't allowed. It's very easy for you to pick feats that aren't allowed. Very easy for you to pick features that aren't, that we're not including from the source books that we didn't include. And you're missing out on the stuff that we are including from third-party books. So that's something we can do. And, and that to me is the only good way right now of handling D&D Beyond. When it comes to using third-party material, it becomes a little harder. I thought about this a lot. And there's a lot of weird tricky bits with third-party material. One of them, a common, a common description is, well, I'll just take that material and I'll use it right inside D&D Beyond. I'm not sure there's not a legal issue with this. And I have heard from, I've heard rumors. I haven't verified these. So, so help me out. And if you know in the comments, you can help me out. But I have heard at least two major publishers of third-party material, both say to the people that they sold it to, please do not put this stuff into D&D Beyond. And that's because when a person puts material into D&D Beyond, they are under a new license agreement that the original publisher did not agree to. I don't know what the details are of all of that. I don't know exactly how that works. But if you go and you take Toma Heroes from Cobalt Press, for example, and you grab the subclass from there, and you take the Toma Heroes subclass and put it in D&D Beyond, you are doing that without the permission of Cobalt Press. I don't know what the legal issues are, but I, knew, I do know as a moral issue, if the publishers of Cobalt Press, if, the, if Cobalt Press says, hey, we don't want you to do this and you're doing it anyway you're being a jerk right they they didn't want you to do that they sold you a pdf they want you to use the pdf they sold you a physical book they want you to use the physical book they don't want you to copy that material into a different platform with a different license agreement that then brings up the question of like well, who owns that material now so i've heard at least two publishers one of them was a rumor they have i've heard i've heard that two publishers both said please don't include this in dd beyond i haven't seen it myself i haven't heard it from them myself 
but that's an issue. So that brings up like as a third party publisher, and this is an interesting data point. I talked about this with some, some publisher friends of mine, some people that are into the D and D industry and have done a lot of work with this. And I talked to one in particular who works for a, a major third party publisher. He is a, a lead designer for a major third party publisher. And I said, I, I gave this big rant that you're hearing now. And I gave him this big rant and I said, how do you feel about this? Like as a, as a player, as a DM and as a publisher. And he said, as a player, I don't care. I like D&D Beyond. I just use D&D Beyond as a, as a DM, maybe a two out of 10, because I, it doesn't really bother me. They can pick what sources they want. It's really it's a two out of 10, because he doesn't really limit sources anyway. So he doesn't care if they use what they want to do. And if they want to use third party stuff, they can come to him and use it, but he's not pushing for third party stuff. He's saying like, you do it. He goes, as a publisher, it's a 10. This is like a really big problem because we're, we want to publish third party stuff and we want to publish third party character driven stuff. And we know that a lot of people aren't going to be able to use it or going to want to use it because they're using D&D Beyond. So how do we do that? And so I thought a lot about like, well, what is the option there? Because there's a big question about the both legal and moral issues of taking third party content that we didn't create and putting it into the homebrew section of D&D Beyond. And there seems to be, at least from my little investigation of this, that that's kind of a problem. Then our only option is don't use D&D Beyond. And then the answer is go back to physical character sheets. But I can tell you, that's a real struggle. I have smart, experienced players who have been playing D&D for 25, 30 years. They've been playing forever. The group that I've been running where we did this has been going on for 17 years. We have played with paper. We have played with physical stuff a lot. It was a physical game. Only recently did we start going online. And D&D Beyond is only like three or four years old. It's not that old. It hasn't been around that long. But many of them, most of the players are like, yeah, I still want to use D&D Beyond. It's just so much easier. And even when we were using third-party material, they said, I just want to use, I, I just want to use D&D Beyond. It's really easier. And when that draw is that great, that these experienced players, players, I, th I think almost all of them, many of them go back to first edition, first, second edition. They've been playing for literally... 30 years are like, I want to use Dini Beyond. I like Dini Beyond better. That's going to be an issue. That's a, that's a problem. And it's a problem because there's so much wonderful third party content out there that we're, we're not going to be able to use if we, if we, if we sit with that. But to me, they're really the only good answer is do it on paper. And there's good ways to do it on paper. We did it on paper for a long time and it worked well. My big trick for using it on paper is write page numbers down. Whenever you put in a class feature or a spell or anything on your character sheet that references it, talk about what book it came from and put the page number next to it. And that makes it pretty easy to pull out the book and read it when you need to read it. It's really not that bad. But people really like being able to just click a spell and seeing the whole spell description. It's really nice. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. One one thing that I think is worth considering is that we can look at, and this was my argument with my 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 friend that works in the publisher side, is we can look at how popular third party material is from a sales standpoint, and and make the misconception that that means it's popular in use. I don't think it is. Tome of Heroes by Cobalt Press had 6,800 backers, almost 6,900 backers. They made $378,000 on that Kickstarter. So one could look at that and say, that was very successful, right? Anybody that's making, because I bet you with Backer Kit, they probably made a half a million dollars on that Kickstarter. So anybody who's making a half a million dollars on a Kickstarter selling character options, that doesn't make it look like character options are in trouble. Third-party character options are in trouble, does it? How many of those... 7,000 backers do you think are using them in their game? I bet not a lot. I bet it's much smaller than the success of the Kickstarter. I think that people buy it because they like it. They, they buy it because they buy it. I also think it's a lot of DMs who bought this, but it's a lot of DMs who bought it. And I don't think it's hitting the table. 
I, I suspect, I don't, I don't have a lot of great data on this. I suspect a lot of third-party stuff isn't hitting the table, not nearly as much as could. And I think the more we get wired around D&D Beyond as the, as the main way we play D&D, the harder it's going to be to have new third-party material brought into our game. The success of a selling a book does not, in my mind, equate to the success of that book being used at a game. That's a problem in general, but it's, I think it's a bigger problem with character options in particular. This is something I, this is a problem I'm going to continue to explore. I don't have a good answer. You've, you've heard my, you've heard my answers, which are, if you want to limit sources, make sure it's very clear to your players how D&D Beyond shows character options and how they need to be able to select their character options so they don't accidentally pick something that's not allowed. And two, that really when you're using third-party stuff, I feel like your best option is to break away from D&D Beyond and use paper character sheets. I don't think that's going to be a great answer for most people. I don't think either of those are great answers. I think they're the best answers we have right now that I can think up in the week that I've been thinking about this. I'm hoping to have better options. If you have other better ways, other solutions you think can help this problem, please leave comments, send me emails, talk about it in Discord. Let me know what you think are the right solutions to both limit source material so that we can focus a campaign around a particular theme and how to best include third-party material that characters can use so that players can enjoy a different style, a different theme of the stuff we see with, with D&D Beyond. Thus ends my D&D rant for today. It's a Sly Flourish bingo card. Oh man, you're the best. That'll click on. Oh, we gotta look at this. Hang on, I wanna look at the Sly Flourish bingo card. Mike tells us that Watsi doesn't own our games. That's an easy one. Mike mentions an evil moon. <laughs> Mike shows Dyson Logos maps. Mike says marker. Mike mentions going for a walk. I like my walks. Mike says one of the things we can do is, oh man, now you're going to make me change my thing. Mike drinks from a crinkly, a crinkly water bottle. Mike says something like, thus ends my rant for today. Mike mentions the session zero. Mike mentions cultists. Mike gets angry about D&D Beyond. <laughs> Mike messes up his intro. Yeah, that happens. Mike asks us not to email him about something. Yeah, don't email me. Mike says go with the gods. Mike feels the need to excuse himself for, for using survey data. Mike shows Albert Rodeo some love. That is awesome. Oh, man. What an awesome bingo card. I think that is now the official Sly Flourish bingo card. That will be in the show notes below. You can see the, the bingo card. We can use that. The problem is this is really for Twitch people because I edit out a lot of this stuff. The people on YouTube who are watching, they think all my intros are, are bananas. They think they're all really great and they never hear a crinkly water bottle. It's just you poor bastards here on, on, on Twitch. Let's do some Patreon questions. Every month I put up a Q&A thread on the Sly Flourish Patreon. Patrons can ask any question. I answer the questions there on Patreon. Some of them make it to the show here. Some of them also become future articles and videos. Victor N says, I've got two new campaigns with two different groups of players starting soon, and I'm considering running the same adventure for both groups. Is this a good or bad idea? If you've done something similar, I have, do you ever confuse the events of one game with another? So I have run dozens of adventures for multiple groups, dozens of campaigns for multiple groups. Most of the Wizards of the Coast hardcover adventures that I've run, I've run for multiple groups. And I definitely like it and I definitely recommend it. To give you some, some, some basic things that I think really help. One, you do get to capitalize on your prep a lot because you're prepping the same material for both groups. So you, you're much more familiar with the material. You often don't have to do nearly as much prep with one group as you did with the other because you're prepping a lot of the similar stuff for both groups. That said, both of the adventures run very differently from one another, and that is a real joy as a GM. The characters and what the characters do with the adventure is what really makes the adventure interesting. 
And when you have totally different players and totally different characters, it can go in really interesting areas. So I've never been disappointed by running the same campaign for multiple groups because they've been very different campaigns in the end. But a lot of the big stuff, a lot of like trapping dungeons and understanding villains and understanding major, major plots, a lot of that stuff, I get to capitalize on the fact that I've used it with multiple groups. So I definitely like it. Your question of, did you ever have a, confuse the events with one game or the other? Rarely. On occasion, I might have like an NPC that was introduced to one group and I accidentally introduced them to the other group thinking they were already introduced and they weren't. Every so often, something like that will happen. But generally speaking, that has been very, very infrequent. And it is far more frequent that they both go in the direction that they go and things are different enough that you don't have a problem differentiating one group from the other. So I, I, I do enjoy doing it. I would recommend it. I, I, I wouldn't recommend against it, right? I think it's a fine thing to do. I have found efficiency with the prep. And I think that when you're running the same adventure for multiple groups, that you still get to really enjoy how the characters are interacting with the story that's going on. So I really like it. Victor, good question. Brian T says, players are orienting our campaign towards the classic cowboy Western. Which Western tropes translate well to a D&D universe in your mind? And how would you execute them? So I'm going to start by describing what I think are the are, are in, in my mind, the best Western inspiration that you can use for your D&D games that I that I've found Westerns for some reason are really really good at capturing what a D&D game is like they the, the plots of Westerns often work really well as D&D plot lines and I don't know exactly why there's something about the way the arcs of the stories work in Westerns that fits D&D very well they're very situation based they're very character driven they're sort of focused they're very action oriented there's a lot of different approaches but some examples are of course my favorite seven samurai or the western version magnificent seven fantastic adventure brigands are overtaking a town some town folk have hired a group to come in and take care of the brigands the heroes are seriously outnumbered from the brigands great storyline probably my favorite DD model that you can use for a DD adventure check out the magnificent seven it's a fantastic way to do it another one would be like the good the bad and the ugly is a great idea. You have three different groups that are all seeking treasure, that are all going through this adventure landscape to seek a certain treasure, to find stuff. They're working against each other. They're working for each other. It is a great model to have multiple parties all working on things. Your, your group is working on something, and then two other competing groups are also working on something. Maybe if you want to simplify it a little bit, you could just have one competing group, but the idea that the groups sometimes have to work together, that sometimes the groups are at odds, but they're all seeking that treasure. Really great way to put a complication into the idea of the, the typical seeking a treasure sort of model. A Fistful of Dollars and A Few Dollars More, both Clint Eastwood movies, also really excellent ones. They come from the movies Sanjiro and Yojimbo, two, two movies by Akira Kurosawa. Same with Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai. A lot of the Samurai movies ended up becoming Westerns. And Sanjiro and Yojimbo both became... I think it's Yojimbo is the first one and Sinjiro is the second one. Both became fistful of dollars and a few dollars more. The model of this is a stranger comes into a town that has normal, nice folk that live there, but two different gangs are fighting in this town and the fights between the gangs are really hurting and killing the people of the village. But the stranger who comes in is not powerful enough to be able to take care of them. So they have to figure out how do they manipulate these groups? Who do they ally with? Who do they fight against? How do they dance back and forth between these two groups to get them to fight each other? Great situation-based D&D. I wrote 
wrote an adventure in Ruins of the Grendel Root based on this called Fistful of Copper, which is just a direct takeoff on that idea. You have hobgoblins and orcs that are fighting and the group needs to go in and deal with the hobgoblins and orcs. Who are you going to ally with? Who are you going to fight? Do you just kill them both? Do you try to get them to fight each other? All that sort of stuff really works well. And then the final one I'll mention for character-driven stuff is Deadwood. Deadwood, I think, is one of my favorite TV shows. I talk about it all the time. Deadwood is a fantastic example of a situation-based story where you don't know where it's going to go. Imagine every character is a pool ball on a pool table and you just throw them together and you see which characters bash off against one another, which ones end up going in the same series, who goes into pockets, who stays on the board. That idea of like just watching characters do what they do, act a certain way and see how it how it changes the situation is really good. It's a very good situational based thing. You can steal so many cool NPC archetypes from the characters that are in Deadwood. So yes, I think Westerns are a fantastic influence. Magnificent Seven, Good, the Bad and the Ugly, Fistful of Dollars, Few Dollars More, and the Deadwood TV show. Excellent Western resources. PhD20 says, since secrets and clues are abstracted from the source and often tossed when unused, I'm curious, have you ever written conflicting secrets and clues? The answer to that is no. And the reason why is life is hard enough and trying to keep competing truths in my head, even if they're not true yet, even though secrets and clues aren't true, trying to keep competing secrets and clues in my head is, is going to make my head hurt. And it's easier if the secrets and clues that I wrote down are still around a basic truth. Now I might throw one out and put a new one in that's different, but I'm probably not going to put two competing ones in. If you try it and it works for you, I'm not the boss of you. You can, you can do what you want. But I know for me, the true, the secrets that I write down for any given session for that session they're at least loosely true. They're not true, capital T true, until the players see them, until the players discover them, and that becomes a truth. They're still fuzzy, but they're fuzzy enough that I, they still lean in a direction of truth. There's still a thing that if the character learns, it becomes true. If I have two that are different from, an, from one another, now I have this like, well, which one do I drop out? There was an adventure, a published adventure I ran once that was a murder mystery where the murderer wasn't, de the murder was determined by the evidence that the characters picked up. So there wasn't a murderer set, a, set a, out front when you read the adventure. The murderer could have been anybody. And it was only through the investigation of the characters that you discovered who the murderer was. And I found that almost impossible to run my i just could not get around this idea of like i'm waiting to see who the murderer is myself by based on the evidence they have. that was a little too quantum ogre for me it was a little too much like the world is too amorphous just tell me who the murderer is like we, you know clues can move all over the place the way they discover who the murderer is can be all different things but the murderer is probably the murderer I have not put competing secrets and clues in place. I have not bothered to have conflicting secrets and clues because my life is hard enough. Life is hard enough. Why, why not just keep secrets and clues going around what you think might be true? Fang says, how should a DM describe their style of play to potential players? This is a really good question. I think it's very important. I'll start off with, I think it's really important that when you are seeking players that you try to make it very clear what your style of DMing is to those players to make sure that you're all going to have a good time. And I think in this case, it's almost like you're, 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 you're sh short selling yourself. You're trying to almost convince them you're not the right DM to see if you are the right DM. So instead of talking about all the things that you're best at or trying to convince them that, that you want them in your game, I'll tell you this, DMs are still a rare commodity. They are rarer than players. You don't have to sell players on your game. Instead, you wanna make sure you get players that like your style. So I think it's important to clarify your style 
to make sure that the players who are coming to your table know what you want. I saw a Reddit post just yesterday, I think, where player d- players came to a DM and they said, we want to make sure that you are a rules as written DM. And the DM was taken aback and like, yeah, I guess. And they're like, good. And then they came with like crazy broken characters. And their whole idea is we don't want you nerfing our characters when we come to the table with something that's clearly broken. Now, we could all be like, well, those are some jerk players, but they that's what they wanted. They wanted a DM who was interested in optimizing. Now, if they'd found a DM who was like, I really love testing the boundaries of the rules of fifth edition, so you can, well, we'll do it together. You can build really interesting, fun, broken characters, and I will push your characters to see the kind of crazy stuff they can do. In this case, for this Reddit post that I read, the DM was not wanting to run that. He wanted to teach people how to play D&D. He had new players, and he had these, and he had players that wanted to pull this stuff, and they were pulling things where they were just breaking the game, and the new players were like, why am I even playing? this and it was a real problem so what are the some of the things that you can do to help describe what kind of dm you are certainly the tools that you use tells a lot you want specifics instead of generalities you don't want to say like i'm a player focused dm well what the hell does that mean you want to say specific things like i don't use roll 20 i use owlbear rodeo but i often run combat in theater of the mind that should tell you a whole lot about my style right with that it's very specific oh he's one of those theater of the mind dms gotta go perfect or no i love running in theater of the mind and that means that it's a dm who's not focused around five foot steps all the time that's cool oh welcome welcome in so i find that like that right off the bat is the first thing i tell people is i run a lot of combat in theater of the mind so if you're used to focus on tactical combat you're not going to get it in my game it doesn't mean i don't have it from time to time certainly for boss battles and stuff but a lot of the times we just battles are free and fluid the other sort of angle as i say is like i'm a story focused dm i'm also a very improvisational dm i'm I, i run loose with things i'm not real specific things can change i don't stick to always the rules that are written in the book i change things to keep the excitement of the game i would probably tell people that i am not opposed to modifying monsters to fit the theme of the game so if you are wanting somebody where the hit points are absolutely sacrosanct and that what's in the monster manual is what's law you're not going to find it in my game now the other side so it's like okay well that's the mechanic-y sort of stuff on one side but then there's a the story focused stuff and i have to be careful about this i've learned this with, with other players that like If I say I'm a story-focused DM, it's like I am not a super detail-oriented DM. So when it comes to character stories and backstories and stuff, I may not grab on to all of the threads that you have for your character and be able to weave them into the game. My game is pretty loose and fast. Things change. Threads get lost. It's not neat. It's not clean. It is not a pure, well-written, beautiful tapestry of all of the intricacies of the characters. It's pretty down and dirty. And what that can mean is if you have a big detailed thought about your character and what they're going to do, some of that might get lost. Some of that might get abstracted. I might not be able to grab onto every hook that you have. That's something I had to learn on the other side. And and so I describe it that way too. So I think you want to be specific about the things you think they're not going to get in your game. You can just say like, I... I'm, I'm, I'm no Matt Mercer when it comes to DMs I, or when it comes to DMing. I don't even know what that means because I look at it and it's like, I don't know. He's a pretty straight dungeon master. I don't know what he's doing. That I mean, he's very, very good, but like, is he better than everybody? But if it helps you to say, you know, I don't run my games exactly like Critical Role, but I think 
it would be, and you might say, well, what does that mean? What that means is our, the, the stories of the individual characters are probably not nearly as well developed as what you would find in, in Critical Role. And probably our players are probably not quite as fully engaged as the players that you see in streaming shows. There are people here to have a good time and it's a pretty loose game. I don't get on people who are on their phones during the game. If, if they wander away for a little bit and come back, we figure that out. So it's just like a loose game. And that way players that come there aren't expecting to have this pure experience of what they have. So I think it's very important to describe your style of play. I would use specifics as much as possible. I would lean in on the things that you think they might want that you're not able to provide. I'd focus on that. Try to try to think about the kinds of things that you don't provide. When you look at all of the styles of D&D that are out there, what are some of the things that you look at and you go, yeah, that's not my style. It really helps to play with a lot of DMs too, so that you get an idea of what those other styles are. If you either watch them, if you're watching streaming games and don't watch just the big ones, watch streaming games overall and maybe say like, well, how is this style different than mine? But I think like what tools you use, what kind of combat you run, how you prep your game, like talk about what you focus on when you're doing the prep of your game. Talk about how you treat the characters. Talk about how you treat the story. You know, do you have a fixed focus story that goes on in a pretty linear direction or do you allow free form? All of those are good questions that you might describe and talk about with your player. And I think it's definitely worth having the conversation with your player on what kind of style of dungeon mastering you're bringing to the table so they can decide if that's the style that they want to fit. And I think it'll be much smoother if they know what kind of style you have. Feng, that was a fantastic question. My friends, I want to thank you all for hanging out with me today for the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I hope you enjoyed this show. If you did, you can help me out in four ways. You can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter where you get a free adventure generator PDF and a weekly article sent directly to your inbox every week. You can support me directly on Patreon where you get exclusive access to all kinds of material to help you run your fifth edition game, city source books, adventures, guides, all kinds of stuff, access to the Patreon Q&A, access to a dedicated Discord channel, all kinds of stuff, and you help me put on shows like this. You can pick up my books on the Sly Flourish bookstore. There is a link to the Sly Flourish bookstore down below. You can get physical versions, beautiful physical versions of the Lazy Dungeon Master's Companion, the Lazy DM's workbook, and Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. They're all currently in stock. Really great, really great books, if I do say so myself. And you can help me by subscribing to this video, liking this video, commenting on the video, sending it to a friend, and sharing this show with those you think will enjoy it. Thank you all very much. Have a great day, and get out there and play some D&D.